Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Sunday School Podcast, where we take Sunday's sermon and we spend a little more time discussing it using the week's sermon curriculum. Uh, This is curriculum we write each week in tangent with uh, the week's uh, passage, as well as the uh, subject matter, uh, using the text that uh, we would have used for the sermon. And so if you haven't listened to this last week's message, we encourage you to go back to the episode right before this and take a listen to that. And uh, even if you did, uh, if you don't really remember that much, refresh yourself, do that, and then uh, we're going to jump into uh, this discussion on John 17. So, appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. Recognize that uh, we would love to hear any questions you have uh, directly about this. You can email us, office at cantonyfree.com. And uh, let us know if there's things you want us to spend more time in and talk about. Uh, we'd love to know that. Uh, this is meant to help you in your journey to become more like Jesus and uh, to help us to fall more in love with God's Word and see the depth and opportunity for growth from that. Uh, so we are close to the end of the series on prayer. We've been going through this series called Lord Teach Us to Pray and looking at biblically what, what defines prayer and how does that what does, that, what does that look like? And uh, the last three weeks, we've been looking at specifically the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, lessons from Jesus regarding prayer. Uh, what did he say about it? What did he say it shouldn't look like? And this week, more specifically, we're going to look at the longest recorded prayer of Jesus' ministry in Scripture. And now, John 17, just to give a little background to this before we jump into full-on discussion, uh, John 17 is not uh, the prayer of uh, that many people think of when they think of Jesus' prayer, which would be his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, this is before that. Uh, so this is, this is uh, before his, uh, ultimately his arrest, and it's before the time where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, sweating drops of blood. Many people would recognize that reference as well. Um, this is all happening before this. Um, so, just so that we get our frame of mind right, <laughs> this is not where Jesus tells his disciples to stay awake. He goes off and prays. This is uh, that That is all yet to come. And you can uh, determine that biblically by looking at 18.1 which said when Jesus had spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. That was after John 17. So, just keep that in mind as far as kind of historically knowing where this falls, and uh, that kind of prequels the rest of the text surrounding this. Uh, But before we go any further, I want to jump into this icebreaker, because it's a really good one. It's a really good one. It's better than last week's. (laughs) 
So the icebreaker in this was, is there a game or activity that is banned from your house because it just can't be done without stirring up division? I'm going to go with just about every game. We're a very, we're a very competitive family. We can't even play Go Fish. <laughs> oh, my children watching them. Oh, you had that too last time when I asked for it. No, I didn't. Yes, I did. No, the number one game in my family is Monopoly. Yes. I will, I will flip a living room table like Jesus entering the temple over a game of Monopoly. I, I know that game. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would, I would venture to guess that there's a lot of people listening to this that would say the same thing. I don't know what it is about Monopoly, but it's it's that greed. It's greed. It's so there's like all the lustful and sinful <laughs> desires of man are in the game of Monopoly. I'm in charge. I run everything. I have all the money. I have all the houses. Everything's mine, and I want everything that you have. That is exactly it. The game of Monopoly is nothing but pure sin. Thanks a lot, Parker Brothers. <laughs> I I have I have uh, no joke. I have told couples before in premarital counseling, like, hey, if you really want to. Get a get a good idea of how your uh, spouse will respond in conflict. You should play Monopoly. <laughs> That's actually really good. I, I've said that before. Now another one in our house. So early on, um, I'm a big Nintendo fan. I like Mario Brothers. Oh yeah. And my wife and I would play co-op. We, we would play co-op Mario, where you have both of you. Mm-hmm. Well, my wife is so slow. When she's playing. And I'm like, don't, don't pause there, Matt. I'm, you can't say my I'm, wife is so slow <laughs> with a pause. I'm, I, and, and so, so within that, I would just like be flying through these levels. Well, the screen only moves, the screen only moves as fast oh, yeah. as both yeah. of you move. And so I would get, I'd be going, 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 and then all of a sudden the screen would stop moving and I would die. And I'd get so mad. I literally threw the controller once. And at that point, we looked at each other and we went, this probably isn't a good idea. Nope. Like, this probably isn't healthy yeah. <laughs> for us. So we don't, we, we'll play, we'll watch one another play. We'll, it's rare that we do anymore, but we absolutely will not play, play at the same time. <laughs> Unless it's Mario Kart, where you're separate. Yeah. And <laughs> that was, screen split was like the greatest thing that ever happened to video games. So... What's interesting, the reason that, the reason this question was the icebreaker is because as we look at John 17, we're going to see this recurring, reoccurring theme of unity that in Jesus' prayer, in the focus where Jesus comes back to this place of desiring that both his disciples and uh, really all believers, all of those who uh, come to faith through the ministry of his disciples would be one just as he and the Father are one. There's a, there's a reoccurring theme of unity in purpose and task. And that's why the main idea, if you listen to this week's message, the main idea focused around true unity can only happen when God's will becomes our will. That we see what God has called us to, and we unify around that. And the, the contrary to that would be <clears throat> that we want our will to become God's will, and so then we make we, we convince ourselves that everyone else needs to agree with my view on things, rather than going, wait, 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 what, what is God commanded? What does he say? As the EFCA would say, where, where is it written? Where stands it written in scripture uh, that this is the case? And if we can unite around that, then it, it changes the dynamic. So uh, we could identify within the church, you know, if you bring this more, the focus here, 
uh, we could identify those things, those uh, programs or activities or music or we identify all these things that cause division and cause dissension. Uh, mo- I, I would venture to argue that every single thing that causes division in the church is rooted in a man-centric kind of selfish viewpoint of something, as opposed to biblically seeing what God has actually commanded and what he's called what he's called us to. So um, think about that. I would be interested to know, those of you listening, what is it that you see in your own house or in the church that you see being a primary cause of divisions or dissension? What is, what is at the root of that? It would be an interesting discussion even for other people to have. So the... Well, if you hear any loud crashes in the background, it is storming this morning. It's God. Yes. <laughs> yes. The angels are bowling. It's like sounds like spring. It does. <laughs> Look at the rain out there. Don't be deceived. It's full of spring. Yep. It's going to get cold again. Okay. Tomorrow. I know. I looked at it last night. I'm like, I have 54 to 14. <laughs> Welcome to the Midwest. So, question number one in this discussion in verse one Jesus takes a specific posture before he prays and the question becomes in a, in a focus on prayer how can the posture in which we pray change the way we pray or does it matter so I don't I'm not sure on that like yeah where, where's because you always see everybody you always hear like if you're sitting down to eat bow your heads and spray right bow your heads and spray where did that tradition come from really when we think about it because yeah. I don't know I haven't done enough research to really think about that um, but I know like when you like when you think of like the Psalms, especially like you think of just looking up the sky and just that raw emotion coming through, and so like seeing Jesus do this, I know there's been multiple times where I've prayed without even closing my eyes. Right. I don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Where there's no instruction in Scripture that says you must bow your head to pray, you must prostrate yourself, and so it's very interesting that, to see Jesus lifting his eyes to heaven, right, and how he's praying. I mean. What do you, you think? I don't well, I, so as far as even the question of where did the, we could look at, I, I'm thinking of at least one place where you can make the case to like bow your head, or it's not really those words. Luke 18, which is the parable Jesus tells, says, you know, this um, communicating this to you so that uh, you will always pray and not lose heart, and it's the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee's going, you know, thank goodness I'm not like this. You know, I have, I, I do all of these things. And then the tax collector, it says he won't even lift his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, let me look at exactly what the language is there because I don't want to, I don't want to botch it. Um, Luke 18, um, this it's verse, verse 9 through 14. Um, Tax collector standing far off, this is verse 13, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I think some people have taken that. Um, Now, where that genuine tradition came from, I don't know. And a good question would be, is why, I, I always challenge people to think about why do we do the things we do. When you, when you say bow your head, 
um, close your eyes and let's mm-hmm. pray. Why? What, like, yeah. I, it's not a bad thing, but it can be if we do it and we don't know why we do it. And it's one thing for us to do that, well, because that's just what we do. It's another for me to say, well, I bow my head in order that I would show humility in and of myself. Mm-hmm. Jesus here, though, he lifts his eyes to heaven. First uh, Timothy, Paul says, I desire that men everywhere would pray in every place, lifting holy hands. Mm-hmm. So we have scripture that tells people to uh, uh, raise your hands. I, there's, there's a lot of scripture that focuses on posture. Yep. But there is always, in every text, there's a reason for the posture that yeah. they take. And so I think... If, if anything, to challenge ourselves to think about why do we why do we take on the posture we do, and can my posture actually hinder my prayer mm-hmm. or my focus? I find that there is a difference in how I pray or how I focus if I pray just kind of sitting down yeah. versus uh, kneeling or sometimes even standing. Sometimes I pace when I pray, yeah. <laughs> and it's more about. I recognize in my own flesh my tendency to wander or to stray. Yeah. And so I take a posture that will help me to focus in and actually direct my attention to the Lord. Yeah. I think that's why we close our eyes. So you don't see something visually. Because, I mean, you know, our eyes are attracted to motion. And so if you're doing anything, you see any type of movement, you're going to focus in on that. And contrary to popular belief, you cannot do two things at once. Psychology says <laughs> you true. cannot. Your brain is actually just bouncing back and forth. It's focus. <laughs> yes. You're not multitasking. That's, That's exactly actually right. a, a fallacy. And so when you when you think about it that, like that from a psychological aspect, if you are you know, looking at something and praying at the same time, you're bouncing back and forth between your mm-hmm. prayer and the object that you're focusing on. So your full attention is not given to God in that mm-hmm. moment. <clears throat> yeah, and there seems to be there seems to be something here in John seventeen where there's a significance that Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and and speaks to the Father. There's a recognition there that God the Father is over all; He is above. And heaven in the Greek language it it it, it can mean the eternal heaven, but it also can just mean the sky mm-hmm. or that which is above. So when you see that Jesus lifted his eyes up to heaven, I don't think I don't think you should go as far to say, oh, he could see heaven. Yeah. But it was more the posture that was visualized, and especially when you take this as the recorded, uh, the recorded reflection um, that even John would have seen. What what would John have seen? Jesus' posture. Obviously, there's a significance there. As he's observing Jesus in this way, to go, wow, right? The posture Jesus takes in this is significant, um, yeah. and we could learn from that. So, knowing how Jesus postures himself in this way, uh, just think about. I, I really challenge you listening to this. Think about uh, what does what what difference does it make when I take a different posture in prayer. And how can that? How can changing that be helpful uh, to being fully devoted to the Lord in, in what I pray? So in the next section of this, verses 2 through 5, Jesus really highlights his own ministry work. Um, and the question for those of you listening on that is what stands out about what he says in these verses? So looking at uh, the text of uh, really verses 2 through 5, and you could really take this all the way through verse 8, yeah. Where Jesus highlights 
even his individual fulfillment of the responsibilities he's been given um, towards his disciples. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But what what in this stands out when we read through this? Um, one of one of the big items I John seventeen. Uh, verse 5 is where I come to a lot with people who question the deity of Christ. Yes. And uh, where Jesus himself, and that's what's so powerful about this, Jesus himself, these are the words of Christ, where he specifically testifies about his pre-existence with the Father before the world began. Before the creation of the world. Which is further, uh, it's further emphasized uh, in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean he was the first created thing. And that's emphasized by verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So there's, there's an emphasis there on even Jesus' uh, influence and participation in creation. Uh, which comes back to an emphasis on the Godhead and comes back, you want to reference Philippians 2 and the deity of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself taking the form of a servant. And uh, John 17 is also one of the places where we can see, when we when we seek to answer the question, how can Jesus be fully man and fully God, which is, there's a portion of this that's a great mystery, it just is. But what did Jesus give up? Because clearly he didn't give up his deity, because he's still fully God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question becomes, what was it that Jesus gave up in order to become fully man? Because there is a sacrifice there, and Philippians 2 highlights that. Um, he, didn't, he didn't grapple for equality with God, but he humbled himself, so he gave something up in order to come to earth. And that's the challenge we should wrestle with. And John 17 provides an answer for that. Glory. Yeah. yeah. And then the question becomes, what, what is glory? I mean, we can define glory on a human level several different ways, but what does glory mean for a holy and perfect God? Right. That's a totally different aspect. Um, and I don't have an answer for that. I can imagine <laughs> that there's a, a lot to employ. I mean, you can say, like, well... You know, Jesus didn't know the hour, so maybe there's some, you know, a knowledge aspect to it. I mean, there's a whole lot going on there that we just really can't answer. And I hate that. I hate when I come across something in Scripture. But that just affirms to me that I'm not God. And that helps put me in my place where I belong because if I knew everything, then I would be God. And I'm not, clearly. And so when I don't know those things, I get frustrated because I'm like, wow, why why is this? Why can't we understand this? Where's the answer? We can come up with all kinds of theories, but we don't have a rock-solid answer. And that, I think, is a part of the glory of God that we're not God. He is God. He is unique. He's not He's not us. We're not him. And so I think that's that's another aspect of the glory there, too. Yeah, and, and just to put this in a, f- a framework even that um, you, you would understand. Oh, sorry. I just took a big drink of coffee, and it was a lot hotter than I was expecting it to be. <laughs> so the word there for glorify is doxazo. Mm-hmm. The same word that we would use when we 
think of the, the English word doxology, mm-hmm. glory. That just just to put that in a framework, if you're wondering, okay, what does that look like practically lived out? Um, that's what Jesus is asking for in return. And it's he's clearly articulating this is something he had past tense, and he's asking the Father, I I long for this to be returned. Return to me the glory I once had with you before the world began. And so we see even there a longing for that which was uh, from Jesus, the longing for that which he gave up. So you can make a great case to go, whatever glory looks like in that, um, Jesus is, uh, is, is even recognizing a longing for that to return. Which I, I when I studied this last, this last week, I, I couldn't help but think how none of us and, and this is purely conjecture, but it, none of us, if we experienced what Christ experienced with the Father before the world began, would give that up, even for the best of people. Mm-hmm. Just in who we are as yeah. selfish individuals. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and Christ came and walked in obedience to the Father for for our benefit and even for those who for for on, on the on behalf of those who will reject him completely like his sacrifice is still sufficient mm-hmm. the the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to save all people all people will not come come to come to believe or receive him. Yep. Scripture makes that clear. Yeah, the, the word many is used, not all. Yes. Many will be saved, not all. Well, and <clears throat> I mean, narrow is the way. Mm-hmm. Few are those who find it. Yep. And there's many, there's many who go take the path, the broad way that leads to destruction. So, they're, they're, by understanding that even for those who in their deepest of sin, reject anything to do with Christ and blaspheme who he is. He still gave up a glory he had with the Father in order that there is salvation available to all people. A powerful, just powerful reminder of the gospel in that. The other thing here that is really important is he just continually refers back to the will of the Father. And this was true across Jesus' ministry. This is not just true here. Uh, in verse uh, um, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, you being the Father, having accomplished the work that you, you being the Father, gave to me. And then he asked, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people. And these are the ones whom you gave me out of the world. Yours yours they were, not mine. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That's specifically where we see the transition to him talking about his disciples. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Um, and Jesus, in other places of scripture, he, he identifies this. I, uh, I do not speak on my own authority, but everything the Father uh, says to me, I speak. Um, I have not come to uh, do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And even later on, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but what? Not my will, but your will be done. 
So Jesus is consistently going back to this place of, I long for the Father's will to be that which becomes my will. That, that I will do the will of my Father who sent me. And that is evidence here in the first few verses of what Jesus is praying. So the third question in this, in the rest of this text, Jesus prays for others, the disciples and all of those who will believe. Um, the question becomes, how can focused prayers for others fulfill God's commands to us? And what scriptures would back that up? Well, I mean, we see, we see Paul. And uh, just about every single one of his letters talking about how he prays for others. And, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, you know, and like I think I think especially like in Ephesians we see it. You know, I pray for you always, and um, think of you. you know, so I, I see that. Um, and then obviously, you know, if we're called as believers to model Christ, well, I mean, we're right here. We see Jesus praying for others. So if we're to you know, he's leading by example. Well, there you go. We've got it right there. Yeah, in John 13, Jesus, that's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He says, yeah. just as I've done to you, so you're to do to one another. That's also where Jesus identifies and says, um, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Yep. And and I want to emphasize something there. Jesus, well, that often gets misconstrued with the greatest commandment. So the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 is... Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, those are commands, but a lot of times people people will say, just in kind of in short, they'll say, um, well, it's it's your love for others, period. That that people, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're you, you know. People are supposed to know you for your love. Well, I'm not disputing that, but more specifically in John 13:35, Jesus says, "By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another." And we need to understand in context, Jesus is talking to his the 12 sitting around the table and is saying the distinction that will will make you unique from the rest of the world is when people look at you as a whole the love you have for each other within that context as brothers and sisters in Christ ultimately is what where where i take this in application for today that's what will distinguish to other people that you are followers of Christ it it, it is not that somehow a worldly definition of love for 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 everyone is what is unique and i'm not again i want to be careful because i'm not saying that that means we act unloving to the rest of the world. But oftentimes we spend so much time focusing on how can we how do we love the lost? How do we love those who are outside the church? And I'm saying that one of the most powerful witnesses to the transformative power of Christ is the unity that we choose or don't choose to have around the gospel. And Jesus in John 13 identifies, hey, the world, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that is, that's a, a, a very humbling warning to the church. Where if we allow dissensions and divisions and all kinds of pointless, stupid controversies to divide us and, and distract us from ultimately what we have been called to in Christ 
then we also taint the witness that we have for the sake of Jesus to the world around us. And I think about what what would the world think if the church became one of the most united places in the world where there is more togetherness and love and care for one another in the church than there is anywhere else. And I think then people would go, what is so different here? Because this doesn't exist anywhere else. But it takes us recognizing our responsibility in that for that to happen. I mean, it's clear he's talking about the church. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, another powerful aspect of this text is when Jesus shifts from just his his 12 disciples. And as I said in the sermon, how can we know that he was speaking in the first part of his uh, 12 disciples? Well, verse 12 he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so, yeah. clearly articulating, all right, there's one of these that was lost. It's Judas. Um, and so, then he shifts, clear down in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And I, the powerful aspect about this is Jesus is praying in anticipation of generational discipleship. That it doesn't end with the eleven. Yeah, and that comes that ties directly to the Great Commission. Absolutely, that's exactly what he says. Yes, he tells he tells this specific group of twelve because at that point at the Great Commission they had picked the replacement for Judas, and he tells them to teach them everything that Jesus had commanded them right. and taught them. So it's that it's passing it down. It's just like, you know, you you're you come from a family of farmers. Well, you didn't you weren't born just knowing how to farm. There's generational passing right. down of this knowledge. And that's the same thing with Christianity and following Christ. It's passed down from church father to church father to church father. And so that's that's exactly what he's talking about and he's tying into it. And then you know, if you want to get you know get a little theological lesson here, you know, the, the Gospels are written in what's called ancient biography, and that focuses on the last thing that a person does. And that last thing, Jesus gives the Great Commission before he ascends into heaven. Right. And so there, this all keeps coming back and tying back to this, and John 17 is really setting up for that. He's, you know, he's setting up with a prayer to the Father to just put things in motion, to keep, keep Jesus' mission going, because his mission is not completed until he returns. And that's what we're waiting on right now. And we only know that because he taught the disciples, the disciples taught, and then they taught, and all the way down to us. And yes. now here we are in this podcast right, trying to teach you. Well, and to recognize that every one of us who claims the name of Christ is a product, is, is a byproduct of the ministry of Jesus mm-hmm. because it began with his disciples. And therefore, every single every single person who chooses to follow after Christ is as the result of generational ministry and impact that's been passed down for centuries, yep. which is amazing. Yes. And the fact that then Jesus prayed <laughs> before he was crucified for all those who would believe as a result of the ministry of his disciples, mm-hmm. that, that kind of forethought in prayer is just humbling. Yeah. To think about. It'd be like us sitting here saying a prayer for our future great grandkids. Yeah. Or even future grandkids because we right. our kids aren't even yeah. old enough to procreate yet. Right. So Right. Um yeah, I mean that that's 
that's God intelligence right there. I mean, well, and in the scope of this too, to understand God had this has been God's plan from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. The plan for redemption. Jesus knew that, and he communicated that. He longed for that. But it's also humbling to think about the fact that if we were to identify what Jesus' desire is for the future of the church, it, it was unity. Yes. From that point, from verse 21 on, his prayer is that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you. The standard for unity is the Trinity. And boy, did we screw that oh, up pretty quick. Oh, my goodness. Oh. I mean, look at the, I mean, just Christianity alone, look at the denominations. I know. Which, I mean, don't get me wrong, a lot of denominational stuff is tradition, and it's the right. minor stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, even major doctrine, I mean, yeah. just look between the Catholics and the Protestants, I mean, there's a huge rift there. Right. And so, I mean, this is, Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he, right. he, you know, prayed for, you know, against this. And it's not... That it's not saying that Jesus' prayer didn't come true or that it wasn't granted. It's eventually going to come that right. way because we will all be united in the end. But there's there's a huge implication there um, of Jesus' prayer, forward thinking, and then how everything's playing out. I mean, if you don't see the lineup and the dominoes falling into place, I mean, it's you need to go back and read it again because yeah. you're missing it. Yeah, you know, you, it can't be. At a certain point, things can't just be explained to you. You have to kind of, you know, if you're, taking, you're listening to this podcast, you pick out these pieces and then read the text for yourself and then go back, listen again, then go back and read again, and right. it'll, start, it'll start coming together. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and, and that leads into that kind of this last question on here. As Jesus focuses prayer towards unity, I think for us to stop and ponder, what what are the number one hindrances to unity amongst followers of Jesus today? Because this is where we we have to recognize the symptoms before we can actually step into treating it and and answering the question of um, what role can we play in helping to fulfill what Jesus prayed in John 17 as the church. Well, I, th- I think this ties back to, you know, when you said if you get one thing out of this this week, I think that this um, this issue of what the hindrance is because we're praying for what we want and yes. not what God wants. Correct. Selfishness yeah. is obviously that would be the easiest answer for the reason for divisions within the fellowship of Christ. Uh, and that's why we have the Lord's Prayer. That's, that's a unifying prayer. We're yeah. praying for God's will. Not right. selfish, selfish game. Right, and and but if if we were to trace back the 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 number one cause of divisions across the church, it's it's selfishness, it's it's pride and selfishness, just in the scope of uh, regardless of what it's about. If you end up allowing the church to be divided over the color of the carpet, yes, that's happened. If you end up allowing the church to to divide over uh, how the music sounds. If you end up allowing the church to divide over what whatever it may be selfishly, as opposed to simply being rooted in what is true, what is biblical, what is right, what is sound, that's selfish. Yeah, and James answers this perfectly. I knew yep. it popped in my head because yep. my family and I were walking through James. We're going to finish chapter five tonight, but in chapter four. Uh, Chapter 4, 3, it says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Right. I mean, it's right there, black and white, clear as crystal. Yes. I mean, it's we are so focused on the here and now and what we're going to do tomorrow, what we're going to do today. Oh, man, we've got these bills. I don't care about that stuff. Yeah, I want to pay my bills. I want to do those things, but... I am so concerned with, am I doing what God has commanded me to do? Right. And, like, going back to the Great Commission, I love it when people tell me, well, that was just for the disciples. <laughs> Did you not read that section where it says, teach them? Right. All those people you're going to teach, teach them what I have commanded you. Well, if we're to learn what he commanded us. And so, I mean, well, actually, let's just look it up here. So, yeah, so Matthew twenty eight nineteen twenty. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. That's the key word there. Yep. All that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So observe. That means to practice. When you observe something, what do we do when there's a national holiday? We observe a national holiday. It means we participate by taking the day off. So you're not getting out of this commandment. We are to do it. It wasn't just for the disciples. Everything that's in this book wasn't just for those certain few people that it's addressing in that moment in time. Yes, there's historical application, there's contextual application, there's period application for certain things that were just common during first century. But <laughs> when you break it down by that key thing in the Great Commission to observe all all of it. Yeah, and the the, the other interpretation of that word is keep, teaching them to keep it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's active. Yep. It's it's not a, uh, it's not just, because some people, I think, think observe, and they think, I'm going to go to a basketball game, I'm going to observe. Yeah, this is not a passive not lifestyle. A, it's not a passive, it's literally to keep, yes. or to walk in all that Jesus commanded them. So you're, his, his call, this was the first call, um, well, it's not the first call, this was Jesus' kind of final call to disciple, a disciple-making way of life. For the disciples to pass this on to other people, teaching them to keep or to observe or to walk in mm -hmm. what he has taught them. So it wasn't to stop with them. Yep. It was to continue forward. Mm -hmm. And that's where this intersects back to the main idea from Sunday. And I just want to end here with this focus that if we want to see the church unified, the will of God has to become the will of the church, not the other way around. And we can see a whole lot of influential factors that make it make us want to seek our will and, and want God to bless our will. But that is a dangerous and slippery slope for us to walk in because it's just religious relativism where we go, well, in our context, you know, we're asking God to do this. And in your context, you're asking God to do this. And you know, that's fine. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. No, no, no. The, the mission of the church is to be the same. And I'm continuously discouraged when I encounter uh, churches or pastors who, who don't want anything to do with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because there's a territorialism yes. or tribalism. Yes. Yeah. Don't go to my church. So well, you're, you're or, I, or you're going to take my people. Or, mm -hmm. And I hate that. It's so anti the gospel and so anti what God envisioned and anti what Jesus prayed the church would be. And so may we, every one of us who's listening to this, may we commit to recognizing what role can we play in being a uniting factor around the will of God, which is the word of God, 
in the church? What can we do today to encourage unity according to the scripture, according to what God has established? Um, where can we begin? And I'll give you a really simple step. Start by immersing yourself in the word of God. Because you will not know what God's will is if you are not actively pursuing his word. He has given us a gift. Not just his word, but in Christ. Who is Jesus? How did he live? What, would, what did he pray for his people? What did he long that his disciples would do? Study it. Learn it. Know it. And then live it every single day. We're going to pray. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Okay, we're going to do this. You know this. Um, right where you're at, pray this along with us. We're going to pray uh, what Jesus commanded his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, thank you for this truth. May we live in light of this for your glory.